This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Tori Hashka, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you very much for having me. Well, this is an exciting day. It live. is. It is. Real people talking Real about people. books I in know. the same space. Because well, we've been um, Zooming and, you know, that has had benefits as well because we've been able to Zoom people um, from overseas. In the past, we would only record with people that came into the office and... You know, COVID changed all of that. No longer there's a tyranny of distance. next week I'm, you know, I'm chatting with Gabriel Byrne. I mean, I've chatted with so many people that we would never have had access to. So there've been some real benefits of Zoom and COVID, but I much prefer podcasting face-to-face. Much prefer. It is nice to be here. So welcome to the office. Thank you. (laughs) So Tori's come all the way from the Northern Beaches. Which, you know, is a bit of a hike. Oh, listen, we don't call it the Insular Peninsula for nothing. No. Yeah. Over two bridges I've come and it is delightful to be here. Oh, good, good, good. Okay, let me introduce you because this is your first book, isn't it? This is my first novel. I've published a couple of cookbooks and travel stories before, but this is my first foray into fiction. Ah, there we go. So Tori, as we said, is a Sydney-based author. She's a food writer and a mum of two. Her articles have featured in Grazia, The Times, The Guardian and The Sydney Morning Herald. And her blog... Is it Eatery? Yes. Spelled E-A-T-O-R-I dot com was ranked by Sever as one of the five best food and travel blogs in the world. Hurrah, hurrah. That was back in the day when we could travel. Yeah. <laughs> was back then. So as we said, this is her uh, first novel, Grace Under Pressure, a deliciously hilarious, honest and heartfelt portrayal of modern day motherhood and the saving grace of female friendship. I'm going to say one of the first things I noticed about this book is all the fabulous endorsements you've got, but people that I adore like Meg Mason, Nicola Moriarty, Fiona Higgins, Keridan Dovey. Keridan Dovey. Keridan Dovey and I actually went to high school together. Ah, she's a beautiful writer she too, isn't is she? She is magical. Kerry yeah. and I went away on a retreat together for four days last year to ah, try and smash out some go. work after a long year at yeah. home with both of our children. And she sets a high bar. Yeah, I, I recorded a podcast with her recently via Zoom, of course, but I just, I've always enjoyed chatting with her. She's a really beautiful writer too. Yeah. And a very beautiful friend. And the Meg Mason, Sorrow and Bliss. Uh, oh, that my was a God. bit of a coup. That yeah. was, that was a I've got to say, the day that the endorsement came back from Meg Mason, I was it was one of those real, oh my goodness, Meg Mason likes yeah, my yeah. book. Oh I my know. goodness moments. So um, as it turns out, we've crossed paths. Before. Yes, yeah. we have. We have. I used to work for the Australia Council for the Arts back in the day when I was in publicity and communications. And um, I was always very jealous not to be working on your accounts. Yeah. So I was running, what was it, Books Alive Get Reading at Absolutely. the time. Yeah. So that was a few years back because I think we've had better reading now for, I don't know, six or seven years. I can't even remember. I must look that up. Anyway, let's talk about 
you. It's a really delightful book. I love the chapter headings. So, I mean, I'm sure you know, Tori, but, you know, I'm obsessed with food and cooking and have been forever. So I think we're going to have a lot in common. So firstly, talk to me about your career and how you got to writing. Well, words have always been an easy, easy place for me. My brain works better going round in circles than it does in straight lines and angles. So um, I worked in communications for the arts, loved that, and then moved to London and um, tried my hand at food writing there. And that was great. Why did you move to London? Did you do that Aussie kind of... We did a little bit of an Aussie thing. We had a bit of a family drama go on. We wanted a bit of, you know, a bit of a chance to have some time and space. We wanted to travel before, you know, we became three. Yeah. It was pretty good because now I have two children and it's a lot harder to get yeah. on a plane and duck over to Iceland for the yeah. weekend. <laughs> so we really, you know, sucked some of the good marrow out of life for those few years. And while we were there, we lived just down the road from Borough Markets, which is one of the most magical food markets in the world. And um, so I did some food writing for them and then got uh, a cookbook deal while I was there, which was great. With who? Um, so that was with Ryland Peters and Small, which is oh. a small outfit over there. No, because I lived over um, just off Portobello Road. I can't magic. Remember. Yeah, it was yep. magic. Uh, and I used to almost every Saturday go to Books for Cooks. Yes. So that's where I had my launch. For, ah. so, so my first my first book was um, uh, A Suitcase and the Spatula, which was a collection of travel stories and recipes. We had the launch there. And then I published a second cookery book just as I had my first son um, called Cut the Carbs. It was part of sort of the wellness craze of sort of 2013. And that was a bit of a, you know, that was a curious life choice for me. I signed the contract for that as I was in labour with my son and convinced myself that Under pressure? (laughs) Yes. Convinced myself it would be fine. I could definitely recipe test a hundred recipes in the first four months of his life. Of course you could. Because he would sleep and it would be fine. And I, except... Because all babies sleep. Yeah. Mine really didn't get that memo at all. So, um, and then I took a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of a pause. Did you launch it? I did. So the second one was done while I was out in Australia. So that one was weird. With, um, that one was with Hardy Grant. Ah, here. okay. So we moved back. Hey, here. I want to go back to Books for Cooks because yes. they became the two fat ladies. Yes, they did. Do you yes, remember they that? Did. Yeah. Yes. Clarissa and I can't remember what the um, other one was called. Oh. Yeah. Anyway, so they became that. And I wonder, I don't know if it's still there. I think it still is. Oh, Notting it's still Hill. there. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Okay. That's right. That's Notting Hills, the suburb. How could I forget that? That's where we lived. A, a magic place for anybody who goes to London. Yeah. I also worked at Dylan's over there. I don't know oh, if it was around yes. when you were there. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I, I was just a dream job, a dream time. Anyway, so back to you. <laughs> <laughs> so your love of food came at an early age. Sort of. I mean, I was a very, um, I was a very tricky child and I was quite selective about what I ate. But then I was lucky as a teenager and I had two step parents come into my life who both were, you know, incredibly talented cooks. And I think it's part of that trying to forge a new definition of family that makes you more open to different experiences. And so I really, as a teenager, my culinary landscape just exploded. And um, I became very... Which is an unusual time for a culinary landscape to explode. Because, you know, mine came late. Yeah. Because I was a bit embarrassed because none of my friends were interested in food and cooking at the time. And, you know, Lebanese Australians. Yes. I mean, I, you know, I was cooking family meals at the age of 10 and 12 and stuff like that, because even though there were six of us, I took great interest in it. But I wasn't talking about that yeah. in real life because no one else was doing it. No one had the, the passion for food 
at my age at that time. And do you know who gave me permission to start really, I think, talk about it is Nigella Lawson. When she launched, there was something about her that thought, I thought, wow, well, if she can talk so openly about her love of food and a love of eating, then I can too. Yes. She opened a lot of doors for a lot of women, I think, to also be taken seriously, you know, particularly these days where she is so, you know, she's so candid about Mm what she's gone through in her life, how food has the ability to heal, how food has the ability to bring people together. And there's not a pretentious bone in her, no. really. She's just so... Well, I mean, I recorded a podcast with her recently, and I think you might know this. If you, Anyway, I talk about this a lot because I love name-dropping sometimes. She came to my place for dinner. What did you cook for Nigella Lawson? <laughs> and it was only recently. It was only about two years ago, I think, two or three years ago. Do you know, it was really funny because her publicist just sent me an email and said, would you like to host Nigella for dinner? I was like, what? Is this, <laughs> is this like a trick? <laughs> Somebody I had loved and admired yeah. for so long. And she's like, no. And I said, when? She's like, uh, this Thursday? <laughs> so I didn't cook Nigella for Nigella. I cooked like a Lebanese Australian slant kind of food but she was just as gorgeous as you imagined her to be in every single way and do you know when I set that table and I put the food on she was already seated and I said hang on a second I want to take a photo and I hadn't put the serving spoons on yet because you know that doesn't a a food photo does not look good with serving spoons so I decided to take a photo before I did that well she's just started eating with her fingers (laughs) she didn't care (laughs) And I thought, oh, my God, you're the real deal. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, go on, back to you. <laughs> back to me. So so then food became a way of really bringing people together. And I, um, it was also a really great way for me and my, my husband um, yeah. when we, we got together when we Does were very young. Does he love eating? He is, yes. He yes. is a very, very Because, you know, there are a lot eater. of people that don't like food and don't no. like eating. So that became a real, you know, we're very different people, but food was the way that we connected. And we had a quest for a few years after, after we went to London after his mother died in some fairly, you know, tragic circumstances. And we had a quest where we tried to eat at as many of the best restaurants in the world as we could. And okay, it was name at, a few. Uh, well, we went to El Bui, we went oh, to the wow. Fat Duck, we yeah. went to Arzac. I've been to the Fat Duck. We uh, went to Arzac, we went to Muguritz, uh, we went, yeah, we... <laughs> we need to, we need to. <laughs> <laughs> we did, we did, a, so that was a lot of what I was documenting on the blog at the time. And it was really, it was a dossier of a life well lived. And it was also a way for us of processing a lot of grief that was going on in life. And so it was a way of trying to find the sweet that counterbalanced a lot of sour stuff that was going on. Because um, food is healing. It is very healing. It is very, and there is a there's a safety and security that comes when you are in the hands of people who understand the power of what it can do. That can that is a form of therapy. I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. Okay, yeah. keep going. So, um, so that was the cookbooks for us. Yeah. And then for me, um, and you would have been quite young then. It was twenty eight to sort of thirty three yeah. or so. And to those have years. two cookbooks under your belt. Yeah. And then and then I was at home with two children, and food takes on a very different mm. role in your life when you are running a short order so, kitchen. Oh, Tori, I say that all the time. People come to my house. I mean, you know, I had people around last night and they said to me, oh, you're such a good cook. And it is really a beautiful compliment. But it is, I truly believe this, I don't have children, so I don't have the pressure of cooking every night. And I think the reason why I am a good cook, and a lot of people could be like me, is because 
I only cook once or twice a week, yeah. if that. And then I can apply myself to it because it's not three meals a day every yeah. single day. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think one of the things that... So the protagonist of Grace Under Pressure is is a food writer. So that yeah, was a natural is. transition, you know, for me into fiction. But one of the... And it is fiction, but some of it is, is definitely comes from a place of place of truth. Um, <laughs> I and did one, notice that. Yes. And one of the things that Grace is, is contending with is a child with allergies. And I think if you are going to talk about some of the anxieties that plague parents today that probably weren't quite as acute, you know, 30 years ago when I was growing up, 40 years ago. Well, my mother wouldn't have known what allergies... Is what, is the what? idea of how to cater for allergy children, you know, the potential hazards of taking food into a, into a playground, the potential, you know, pitfalls that can happen just by, you know... Just As kids die. The, I mean, the consequences are real. I have a, yeah. I have a child who has a who has a dairy allergy and, wow. you know, the measure of... I joke with her, she's four now, but I joke with her that the measure of my love is that I gave up cheese for 14 oh, wow. months for her. Yeah. You know, if you want to know how much I love you, yeah. you know, wow. I gave up cheese for and you. And has she still got that allergy? She does. Because they can grow out of she it. She can. Time. She's one of the small percentage that hasn't. That so, hasn't, yeah. um, She's still got time. She does, yeah. yeah. Hopefully, hopefully, you know, camembert is still in her future. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Or maybe veganism is, and then she's got nothing to worry about. <laughs> hey, you know what I particularly liked about book? The chapter headings. Cold tuna from a can. That's yes. a chapter. Right. So all of the chapter headings I, are uh, perfect, foods. Perfect yeah. pancakes, yes, yes, all of them. I just thought, how clever of you to bring in everything you love into one fiction book. That was the most fun. Yeah. That, to have a blank slate and to just be able to throw everything up in the air and go, okay, let's curate. And to make that work. To curate something that, that is fun. Yeah. Um, and the the book has four spiralling narrators in it. So there's there's Grace, but then there are the three other women who are in her life that they start, you know, they're, they're all harried. They're all burnt out to different extents. I think that's a predicament that's pretty common to oh, yeah. most women yeah. in the world at the moment. Particularly mums with small kids. Yeah. Particularly. I think... And I can we think we can be open and honest about that. They they bear the brunt. Yeah. That. I mean, the mums are not okay right now. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> the mums the are not okay. No. Um, but the four spiralling voices was a, was a really fun exercise for me in exploring different aspects of not only my personality, but of the people that I love in my life and trying to find a way into their, you know, the things that made them angry and the things that, you know, they had endured and conquered. So, Mm. and food was the way of finding the anchor point of comfort for Mm. each of them. Mm. How did you transition from writing recipe books to writing fiction? Um, slowly. Yeah. Really slowly. And and originally this book ha- was much more akin to a f- – oh, um, it was sort of a hybrid. And originally it had recipes all the way through it as the chapter headings for it. Because right. the book traces Grace's pregnancy where, you know, there are all those NAF pregnancy apps that trace, you know, when the week one or week four of pregnancy, your baby's the size of a fetus is the size of a poppy seed. And through to the end, it's the size of a pumpkin. And week by week, they let you see. And I developed, you know, for fun during my second pregnancy and also through my first, you know, a series of recipes on my on my blog of tracing, you know, each week of the pregnancy with a recipe for each of them and then turned it into an app. And so it was a way of me trying to, you know, maximise the content. And so there were those recipes all the way through the book. But it was really when I sent it to my agent that she came back to me and she said, you've got to let the story speak for itself. She was like, I get what you're doing with the food and it's interesting to me, but the heart of this story is about these women coming to live in a village 
of their own and creating their own notion of what is what is a village these days. And so that has to be the heart of the story. So I had to pull all the recipes out. Some of them now live in the back of the book and they have a home there, but there was a real leap of faith in going, okay, I'm not, this is not a food book anymore. This is a novel. You know, mm. how do we, how does that feel? And how did it feel? Really fun. Yeah. Really, really fun. Yeah. yeah. And I think one of the best things is that it is a bit like creating, you know, a stew because you get to read and spend time with all of the female writers that you, you know, that nourish you so much and then draw from that and sort of put them in and, and mix it up and find your own slant mm. on it. So, mm. you know, I've read a lot of um, Nora Ephron's Heartburn, you know, while I was, you know, the, there's a lot of female authors that have relied on food as a um, persuasive tactic and also as as a metaphor, as an extended metaphor through it. And I think it was when I found the metaphors that anchored the book that I really went, okay, I, mm. you know, this feels like sure footing. And the cold tuna from a can was one, you know, that really flinty taste of exhaustion mm. that you get sometimes. Do you know, I've got to say, it's one of my favourite things. As a matter of fact, um, and people often are surprised, yeah. I, I don't go for the regular supermarket brands, but I travelled, and only very recently, I think this was about four or five years ago, I was in Spain along the coast up there near San Sebastian and we stopped off at a fishing village and I can't remember what it's called and we had tuna and fresh bread and it was not fresh tuna, it was yep. tuna like out of a can, but it wasn't yep. out of a can. I think the restaurant made it themselves. And it, I think to this day, I'm still trying to find that flavour again. Yes. And I could probably say at this point, it's been my favourite all-time meal ever. And I've eaten it in a lot of there places. There we go. There, there we go. go. There we go. Because the flavour was intense. Okay. See, this is what I find, and you've, you know, we won't talk about restaurant names, but there are so many restaurants that just don't get flavour. There no. are so many cooks that don't get flavour. Because I think it's that mix between art and science and unless it's got the heart mm. with it. And you mm. can taste you can taste it when mm-hmm. there's the heart Absolutely. with it. Absolutely. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Just going back to Grace Under Pressure, do you know what I think you captured well is community? Because not just community with food, which I think is very much about community, one of my favourite scenes in Looking for Alabrandi, do you have you of seen that? Yeah, yes. and read that, um, is that when they're making the tomato. The passata. Yeah, oh my the gosh, passata. the passata day. It's one of those scenes that, Isn't it? it's that just, just sears into your yeah. brain. And I grew up yeah. with that. Like my mother, it wasn't tomatoes. We would pickle with her. So yeah. we would pickle turnips and olives and all sorts of things. But anyway, I keep getting sidetracked. Commun- 
community, I think, with food is still around to a certain extent because we have people around for dinner or we meet somebody for lunch or we go out to dinner. But community with kids, I think we started where we were heading in the wrong direction, that women with young children were becoming more and more isolated. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this book is about that, isn't it? It is. And I think one of this book, you know, there's there's a bit in the end of the book where Grace talks about how she, um, you know, she does something fairly outlandish and elaborate for her job. But for her, that she calls it a smash and grab and that she what she is looking for is the ability to claim her old self back and that motherhood is the ultimate identity theft. And I think that's what it can be is that, that you are sometimes just cast so adrift in this sea of... You know, and also you're new expectations. Alone. You're exactly. Alone. The main care is often alone. very isolated, yeah. and unless you find a community of of women who are local to you, whose children are on a similar sleep cycle to you, who because that understand whole, you, the then extended it can be very, family has gone. The extended the notion of the extended family for many of us yeah. is um is is a bit of a fiction. It, it is because I look back at it, and I'm one of six, so I've got four sisters and a brother. And people often think, oh, my God, you know, how could they have ever had six kids? And we're all just only yep. two years apart, just two years apart. Your mother. But we, <laughs> sure, sure, but it was a community. It yep. was my mum, it was my aunt, it was my uncle. Yep. We had neighbours. We weren't alone. Yeah. And I don't know sometimes whether, because parenting, and you can snap at me if this is not <laughs> right, feel free, but from where I sit sometimes is, that mums or the main carers, even dads do this, of course, they have this notion that they know best, they know what to do, and it's this whole kind of helicopter hot housing approach and that, you know, you're the first person on earth to have had a child and nobody knows better than you do. And I think that can be very isolating. I think what it is on t- as well, yes, there's part of that, but I think that there is a there's another pandemic of anxiety that is particularly acute amongst parents of my generation for it. And it's related to children? To, to, yeah, absolutely. Parental anxiety. And that was one of the issues that I really wanted to tap into in Grace. And I think people talk about postnatal depression a lot, mm-hmm. but they don't necessarily talk about postnatal anxiety and what that can feel like. And that sense that that there are so many potential hazards there. And without that that reassuring hand on your shoulder to say, it's okay, you know, some days your only KPI is that you have to keep those children alive by the end of the day. As long as everybody's alive at the end of the day, job done. But I think so many of us come to parenthood later. We're so used at, to optimising every aspect of our lives. We're so used to being excellent and then you are suddenly thrust into a world where it is out of your control you know if you get a kid who's not a sleeper you can be the best mum in the world but you may not be able to make that child sleep you know if you get a child who has allergies you know you may be the best chef in the world but you may not be able to cook something that is going to soothe or nourish that child you know mm. as easily as as, as you know what I heard recently I think it was on the ABC and they were talking about who does the afternoon segment? Valentine, James yeah. Valentine. Yeah. yeah, and he was talking about that the grandparents had to go to parenting classes. Yeah. I mean, seriously, Tori. Well, I mean, nineteen. I mean, we joke, but nineteen eighties. There's a lot of stuff from nineteen eighties parenting that would not fly these days. The amount of public shaming that would come if you left a child in the back seat of a car and ducked into Bunnings for an hour to yeah. pick up your supplies, which was common for many of us who had parents in the oh, okay, 1980s. Right. I'll buy that one. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, I was 
there were so many halcyon things about my childhood where I was allowed to run on the street and play bull rush until bull rush until you couldn't see the numbers on the opposite curb, and that's Mm. when you knew it was time to go home. Mm. And if you, in many suburbs in Sydney, if you let your kids run out unsupervised on the street, you would be potentially reported by somebody. Absolutely, if it wasn't to, and certainly a motherhood Facebook forum would would do a little bit name, of name and shaming. I yeah. want to get onto motherhood <laughs> Facebook forums, but before I get onto that, just back to the food and before I forget this yes. thought. So I, um, I'm so lucky and so I have got this beautiful niece and she has allowed me the gift of picking up her children on a Monday afternoon from school. It used to be two or one's gone to high school now, so I've only got the one. The high school one does not want to be picked up by yes. his aunt. <laughs> I don't know why, but he just doesn't. <laughs> He's catching the train. But the younger one, I've still got the younger one. But anyway, I feel as though that's been the greatest gift of all to me. It's the best gift somebody could have given me because I have them till about seven or eight o'clock and then their parents come pick them up. But I have also fed them, obviously, during that time. Now, I have struggled with that. That's been hard, how picky they have been. And no more picky than anyone else, I guess, as children. And do you know that whole thing for me of feeding adults is always that you just... You know, you make something and people respond really, really well all yes. of the time. Kids yes. don't do that. No, it's really humbling. It's really humbling. They do not do and that. And I have, you know, I <laughs> I think I'm a, I'm a fairly okay cook. Yeah. And I have two selective eaters from mm-hmm. children and I have just had to learn so, you know, so swiftly that to separate my ego from mm-hmm. all of it. You know, the other day the little one professed to me that he now eats salad. He's eight. He's like, do you know I eat salad now? I said, really? Before it was chopped up with cucumber. That's yeah. all he ate was Lebanese yeah. cucumbers as a salad. He I've ate lots of other things. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So this was only last Monday and I thought, wow, you're really eating salad now? He said, yes, I am. I am eating salad with dressing. With dressing. And I was like, oh, so I made an Italian cabbage salad, you know, where yep. you dress it with lemon juice and olive oil rather than mayonnaise. And yep. You know, you shave some parmesan over it. I think he had one strand of cabbage. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, are you kidding me? And he's like, well, it really wasn't what I expected. (laughs) The expectations management is is half the game. Is Is it about developing a palate? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I also you don't think, know that. You well, should no, know no, that. No, I do. No, I do. I can, I can talk to you intellectually about it for yes. half an hour if you'd like. Yes, and that it can take up to, you know, 10 to 100 times of exposure in order for a child to, you know, appreciate different flavour profiles, become accustomed to bitterness. I can talk to you about how you should start feeding them, you know, you know, make sure they're getting enough fats and broth and et cetera. But also sometimes... As we know, it's not about nutrition and it's not about taste. Sometimes it's about control. And if there are things in people's lives that are not feeling in control, food is a very easy way for a young person to, you know, get some sovereignty back into their lives. So drawing barriers and parameters around what they will eat and what they won't eat you know, is is a way of doing that. So taking the pressure off and making sure that they're exposed to good foods, but, you know. Yeah. Um, just there are some ways is, I just is, took yeah. to making what I knew they did. Yeah. You know, I didn't, yeah. you know, I wasn't but, adventurous. And I mean, he loves it and he eats It I is make. one of the great, you know, it is mm. one of the great sadnesses in my life that I have two children who, if they had their druthers, would eat um, the diet of a sumo wrestler every day. <laughs> my children will eat salmon sashimi and avocado and nori papers and rice. 
Oh, yeah. Which is, you know, is fine. Yeah, that's but, fine. But, but, you know, if you would eat some moussaka, that would be delicious. You know, <laughs> if you would, if you could try some of the bass that mum and dad are having, that would also be great. But yeah. the idea of, of flavours combining and touching and textures can be quite quite confronting. Mm. Do you do the eating together at dinner or do you do We try the... sometimes, but yeah, I've got a spouse who works very long hours. And yeah, it's so hard, isn't it? It is hard. Yeah, because we, I mean, and I don't know how my parents pull this off, but I mean, guess it was back in the day. We sat down at 5.30 every single day, all eight of us around a table yeah. and ate together. Yeah. yeah. I don't know how they yeah. pulled that off. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that I tried to put into the book is this, that idea of, you know, food as a sense of community. And so one of the things that was a real saviour for me when my children were very small was there were three or four women in my local area and we would form a village two nights of the week and we would feed our children all together, line them all up, put them in a train through the bath one after another. Somebody (laughs) would hold a squalling baby. Somebody would feed sausages to another one. Somebody would change the nappies in the corner and then you'd take them all home, you know, at seven o'clock in their pyjamas, fed, clean, we'd have a chance to throw half a glass of wine at our faces, you know, and you, those hours between four and seven at the end of a long week can be very lonely. So finding that community of of like-minded women was really one of the saviours for me and one of the things that fed into Grace quite a lot. And how old are your children now? They are seven and four. Right, but you still manage to write a fiction book. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, some of it, do you remember a couple of years ago, there was a, there was a unique cartoon of a woman looking, pushing a pram and looking down at her phone. Yes. Yeah. That made a lot of women pretty angry. Yes. Um, thanks learning. Um, that was me a lot of the time. I wrote a lot of the book on my phone. I wrote it on the side of soft play parks. I wrote it on the side of swimming pools while they were having swimming lessons. I wrote it, you know, on the side yeah. of skate parks. I would take my laptop to the skate park in summer holidays. Summer holidays, what a nightmare. Six weeks of full-time childcare. Like, yeah. <laughs> how does that work? Um, and some, some, for some schools, it's longer. Yeah, yeah, pay for the privilege of that. Um, so I would take my laptop to the side of a skate park and I yeah. would sit down on a towel and, you know, two little kids at I'd take, you know, water bottles and snacks and Band-Aids and hats and I'd sit there and I'd do a bit of work and, you know, I'd look up every time they said, hey, mum, watch me, but then get back to... Yeah, and you say, yes, darling, yes, darling. Um, I don't know if you answer this. Fiction. Yes. So to go, because really you'd only written non-fiction. Well, you'd only written recipes yeah. and introductions, and, right? And, and travel stories. And yeah. travel stories, of course. So then you took your hand to long-form fiction. That's a transition, isn't it? It is. It is. And it was one, I mean, I've got a terrible novel that sits in a filing cabinet from when I was 21. Oh, I think every novelist does. Yeah, yeah. from when I was 21 <laughs> that I tried. I got very unwell when I was 21. I got um, chronic fatigue syndrome for a few years oh, then. Oh, and, um, and that was, and writing that novel, you know, at the actually it was quite fun. I worked as a nanny at the time because I needed to have a job I could take a nap on. And so I used to have a little, you know, one-eyed snooze while the baby slept. And so that was also a pretty socially isolating time. And so writing fiction then was another way of sort of creating a make-believe world. But, you know, that book will never never see the light of day. So it was fun to sort of return to it and, you know, with another 15 years under my belt and go, okay, let's see if we can do this, but do it properly this time. Yeah. 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 Um, it, It is. It's a great discipline. I think you've done very well with it. The book is called Grace Under Pressure. Tori, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you, Cheryl. It's been a delight. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. 
Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.